All right, well, we are in Isaiah 26. If you'd like to go ahead and open up there, Isaiah 26. And we are continuing our our expository study. And expository means that we are exposing each verse. It's verse by verse, expository through each verse in each chapter uh, here in the book of Isaiah. On Sunday mornings, we will pull out a verse or two or a topic or two from the text, and then we will expound on that message on Sunday morning. And so um, Wednesday nights, we go verse by verse through the Bible, and then Sunday mornings, we expound on what we are studying on Wednesday nights. And so that's how we do it here. Uh, So tonight, we are in Isaiah 26, and we've entitled the message, The Desire of Our Soul. The Desire of Our Soul from verse 8. Isaiah 26, 8 says, The Desire of Our Soul is for Your Name. So verse 1 of Isaiah 26. In that day, this song will be sung in the land of Judah. We have a strong city. God will appoint salvation for walls and bulwarks. And it goes on. The song goes on actually all the way through verse 6. And so this is a song that is going to be sung in the land of Judah in the kingdom age during the millennial reign of Jesus Christ, when Jesus Christ is ruling and reigning from Jerusalem over the whole earth. And we are not too far off from that day of of Christ coming back to set up his kingdom. He promised he was going to come back. It's been almost 2,000 years since he left and went to heaven. And so we're 2,000 years closer to the return of Jesus Christ uh, than they were in the early church. And and yet uh, God had promised to save Judah. He had promised to save Israel. Uh, He has promised to save us as his church. And this is a song that is going to be sung uh, in that day, this day of national salvation for Israel and for God's people. We have a strong city. God will appoint salvation for walls and for bulwarks. Verse 2, open the gates that the righteous nation which keeps the truth may enter in. Now, Jesus is our salvation. When we read about salvation, God will appoint salvation. We know that this is speaking of Jesus Christ. As a matter of fact, Jesus' very name in the Hebrew is Yeshua. We translate it uh, Jesus in the English from the Greek. But in the original language, his name was Yeshua as a Jew. He was Jewish. Jesus is Jewish, of course. And Yeshua means the salvation of Yah, or the salvation of Yahweh, or Jehovah's salvation. So his name is his mission. He is the salvation of Jehovah in the flesh. He came in person. He didn't just talk about saving mankind. He came and he saved sinners. He came and he saved sinners like you and me, and he's been saving sinners for 2,000 years. All who would call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. He is also the Word, the Logos, who became flesh and dwelt among us. God didn't just give us His Word. His Word came and became flesh. His Word took on flesh and He came and He dwelt among us. So the very Word of God came and became our salvation. And so this is always speaking about the promise 
uh, of the peace on earth that is to come when Messiah will rule and reign over all the earth. He's going to make everything right. Salvation is a, a person. It's Jesus Christ. He is our salvation. He's our Savior and he's our Lord. But he's also personally our salvation. Again, in verse 2, open the gates that the righteous nation, which keeps the truth, may enter in. God is allowing us to enter into his gates. He's allowing us as his people. This is his promise. We are going to be part of this, and we are going to be able to enter into his kingdom. He's going to open the gates of heaven to us. He's going to open the gates of his kingdom to us, and we are going to be allowed to enter in, along with these who uh, specifically Isaiah was writing to, which was to Judah and to God's uh, national people Israel that will be saved when Jesus Christ returns. The Jews who are there that cry out to Jesus, he will save them according to uh, Zechariah chapter 12 and Zechariah chapter 14 and Isaiah uh, 53 and uh, Psalm 22 and so many old, other Old Testament passages speak about this national salvation for the Jews when Jesus Christ returns. But we have also been grafted in uh, to the fatness of the root of Israel, of Abraham, through our faith in Jesus Christ according to the book of Romans. And it, notice here that it says, open the gates that the righteous nation which keeps the truth may enter in. Uh, we must keep the truth. We must be those who learn the truth. Uh, sanctify them by thy truth. Jesus said in John 17, 17, thy word is truth. So we know that God's word is truth. You read Psalm 119, it's all filled with the truth of God and God's word being the truth. And we test all other truths by this truth, by God's truth. And then once we learn the truth, we keep the truth. We are those who preserve the truth. Jesus said that we are to be the salt of the earth and we are to be the light of the world. And salt was a preserving agent that they used to preserve their meats. It was to preserve, to stop the meat from rotting and to let it last and to keep it and to preserve it. And so when Jesus said that we are to be the salt of the earth, I believe that he was speaking of us preserving what is right we have to stand for what is right. This is why the Antichrist cannot come and take over the world while the church is still here. We're in his way. We're in Satan's way. We're the only thing really preventing Satan from taking over this world and the Antichrist coming into power. I don't know if any of you saw the Super Bowl. I didn't watch it, but the halftime show looked pretty demonic to me, pretty satanic, uh, just appalling uh, with floating ghastly red-eyed angels floating down and dancing around and like the fall of Lucifer and all kinds of weird symbology. And I, I, I'm not into it. I'm not researching that. I don't have the time. But uh, this world is ready to accept the Antichrist. This world is ripe to accept a false Messiah who's going to tell everybody what they want to hear and then destroy them. And the enemy cannot take over this planet while the church is still here because Jesus said the gates of hell will never prevail against my church. So, so long as the church is on the earth, the gates of hell cannot prevail and take over this earth. So we have that promise. But the church has to be the church. We have to be the salt and the light. We have to be that which preserves that which is righteous and true and good. 
And we have to preserve that in our society and pass it down to the next generation, to our children and our children's children and so forth. Uh, And we have to expose what is evil. That's what the light does. You flash the light on and the evil is exposed. You know, people do their dirty deeds in the darkness. You walk into a casino or you walk into a bar. You have to let your eyes adjust because it's so dark. Because people do dirty things and dark things in dark places. Most crime takes place at night. Most rapes and murders and carjackings and drug deals and shootings and stabbings take place at night. Bad things happen at night. Witchcraft is practiced at night. Satanic offerings are made at night, typically during the witching hour from 3 to 4 a.m., the darkest time of the night. And so we are called to be light. Jesus is the light of the world. He tells us, you are the light of the world because he's in us through the person of the Holy Spirit. And we are called to be light in a very, very dark world. And we are to be those who keep his truth. Learn his truth, teach his truth, and keep his truth as his people. He continues in verse 3. You will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. I did a whole message uh, about this verse on Sunday morning, last Sunday. I encourage you to listen to it if you weren't here. Uh, But this is such a beautiful promise of the peace of the Lord. He will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee or on on God. So, again, if you put your eyes on your problems, you're not going to have peace. If you put your eyes on your anxieties, you're not going to have peace. If you put your eyes on your fears, you're not going to have peace. You have to put your eyes on the Prince of Peace, if you want to have the peace of God to rule over your heart, no matter what happens to you. Nobody can rob your peace if you keep your eyes on Jesus. And this is what he's telling us. He will keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee. We have to be singularly focused on God, on Jesus Christ. And as the world falls apart around us, And as things begin to become more and more wicked, as the preparations are being made for the Antichrist to come and take over this world, and things are happening uh, to that regard like never before in human history that we see happening, the technology is being used in unbelievable ways to usher in the kingdom of darkness which is coming. Uh, We have to keep our eyes on Jesus and our minds fixed on him. You know, your thought life is so important. You have to take your thoughts captive. And you have to cast down the wicked imaginations. The enemy attacks us in our minds first before he attacks us in other ways. And so we have to keep our minds stayed on Jesus, on God. And then when we experience that peace from God through Jesus Christ, and now we have peace with God, we're no longer enemies of God. We're no longer fighting against God. We're no longer resisting God, we've surrendered to him, then we experience the peace of God in our lives. And really, you can never have the peace of God when you're fighting against God. It's just very illogical to think you're going to have the peace of God in your life when you're resisting the Holy Spirit and you're disobeying God as a, as a daily practice of your life. If you're living in sin, you're living in willful disobedience to God, you're never going to have his peace. It's just, it's just not possible. It's a contradiction. To think you're going to have the peace of God when you are rebelling against God, which means you're actually at war with God. And so we, we just have to stop fighting God. We just have to surrender to him. 
and just say, Lord, not my will, but thy will be done. And this was the example that Jesus gave to us. And he says, I'm never going to leave you. I'm never going to forsake you. I'm going to be with you to the end of the age. He is with us and he is for us and he will never leave us nor forsake us. But we have to surrender. We have to raise the white flag and stop fighting against God. And once we lay down our arms and we, we surrender and we stop resisting him and we begin to yield to him, that is when we are flooded with the peace of God. And then no matter what comes your way, you will have his peace, peace which passes understanding. You must allow God to be your God. He must be your master and your Lord, not just your Savior. You must allow God to rule and to reign over you as his people. And really, that's what a master does. The master is the one who rules over the servant, and we are his servants, and he rules over us. We're his bond servants. We're willing to serve him because he's a good master. There's a hard taskmaster who is Satan, and sin is a very wicked master. Jesus is a good master. You're going to serve somebody. You may as well serve Jesus because Jesus is such a good Lord, and he's such a good master. But he will not uh, force you to obey him. He gives you choice. He gives you free will, and, he, and then you are expected to exercise your freedom to surrender your life to him and to obey him, and then you'll have his peace. He says in verse 4, he says, Trust in the Lord forever, for in Yah, which is the shortened uh, form of the word Yahweh or Jehovah, the Lord, for in Yah the Lord is everlasting strength. So trust in the Lord. Trust in the Lord. Uh, we read on Sunday, and I'll read it again, uh, one of my favorite verses in the Bible, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, talk about trusting in the Lord with all your heart. And again, Proverbs is the book of wisdom. Um, I read the Proverbs, and I've said this to you many times because I want to remind you, if you want wisdom, the Bible says you need to ask. And James says that anyone who asks for wisdom, God will give him wisdom, him or her. You have to ask. But then you also have to seek wisdom. And you have to actually invest the time to get wisdom from God's word. And the book of Proverbs is the book of wisdom. It's like the book of wisdom that's been distilled down, boiled down. Uh, the book of Proverbs has 31 chapters. There's 31 days, uh, never more than 31 days in any given month. And so you can read the book of Proverbs every single day of the month. So on the 1st, you could read Proverbs 1. On the 15th, you could read Proverbs chapter 15, etc. You never have more than 31 days in the month. And so you'll always have a proverb to read for the day of the month. And then you just reread it every month. And I've been rereading the Proverbs for 20 plus years every single day, and I still learn from it. And so I encourage you, if you want wisdom, and I would encourage you to seek wisdom, to read the book of Proverbs. It only takes you 10 minutes a day, and the rewards are immense, the wisdom that God gives you from uh, this book. But in Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 and 6, tell us this. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Remember, we're talking about trusting in the Lord. And lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct your paths, or shall make your paths straight. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, 
and do not lean on your own understanding. You see, our problem is, is that we just don't sometimes understand what's really happening. We can't know everything. We are limited on our knowledge. We are limited on what we know. But God knows everything. And God is always true and always right. And everything he does is good. And so we could trust the Lord. And we just have to leave it with him. We have to leave it in his capable hands and not lean on our own understanding. And, and so often we try and, you know, find ways, clever ways to get our way the way that we want it to go because we're clever people and we're smart and we could, you know, scheme and plan and so forth. And then we don't know if that's God's will or not for us because we schemed and planned and manipulated and coerced and did all these, manipulated these people or things to get our way. And then we said, oh, look at this great thing that happened to me. But you manipulated the whole thing. You coerced the whole thing. You crafted the whole thing. How do you know that it was the Lord who was doing this for you? So, And then a lot of times we end up regretting the things that we manipulate to get or coerce or force our way to get. And then we have a mess on our hands. Oh, Lord, look at the mess I have. Well, we didn't just stop and trust the Lord. We didn't just uh, lean not on our own understanding, but lean on, on him. He says, in all your ways, acknowledge him and he will direct your path. So as long as you put God first in your life... He will always lead you. He will always open the right doors and he'll close the doors. He'll answer the prayers that you have the way that he chooses to answer the prayers. Uh, because sometimes God's uh, answers to our prayers are not answering our prayers, at least not giving us what we're praying for or answering our prayers the way that we want him to answer. But God knows what's best. He knows the future. He knows all things. He's not limited by our finite minds and our finite knowledge as we are. God is omniscient. He knows everything. He has all knowledge. So uh, it, you could trust him. You could trust the Lord. And you could trust the Lord because he is trustworthy and he loves you. He died for you. He shed his blood on the cross of Calvary to save you. He, Jesus intercedes for you. He is your advocate uh, Satan is your adversary, the accuser of the brethren, but we have an advocate, Jesus Christ the righteous, seated at the right hand of the throne of God, who is there ever to intercede and make intercession for you and for I before his Father. Beautiful uh, promise here in Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him. He will direct your path. Again, in, 20, in Isaiah 26, 4, trust in the Lord forever, for in Yah the Lord is everlasting strength. So not only does the Lord know everything, he has all knowledge and all wisdom, but he has all power. He has everlasting strength or everlasting power. He is omnipotent, omnipotent. Potent means power. He has all power. There's nothing that's too hard for God. God spoke the universe into existence. He holds the whole universe together by the word of his power. He gives you breath and he gives me breath to keep us alive. He continues the earth spinning on its axis and creating the season. seasons. He creates the water cycle as the uh, water is absorbed through evaporation from the ocean, from the heat, and then it goes over by the clouds and turns into snow. The snow falls on the mountains, it turns into water. The water comes down the rivers, and then it goes back to the ocean, and the water cycle begins again, and it provides water for us to drink and for us to uh, water our, our, our livestock and to water our crops and so forth. The Lord keeps all of this going. He keeps everything 
in order. And so he is all-powerful. He has all power available to him. As a matter of fact, there are some beautiful scriptures about God's uh, power and about him being everlasting. Everything he does is eternal. It's everlasting. It's not temporal or temporary. You might want to jot these scriptures down. Deuteronomy 33 Verse 27 says this about God. The eternal God is your refuge, and underneath are the everlasting arms. He will thrust out the enemy before you and will say, destroy. Verse 28, then Israel shall dwell in safety, the fountain of Jacob alone, in a land of grain and new wine. His heavens also shall drop dew. And so the Lord, he's, he, he's eternal. He's our eternal God. He is our refuge, our place that we can run to, a place of safety, especially in our times of need. And uh, he rides the heavens to help you, uh, it says in verse 26. And in his excellency coming on the clouds, uh, and underneath are his everlasting arms. So he's there to catch us. He catches us when we fall. He has everlasting arms to where uh, if a righteous man falls, he will get back up on his feet uh, seven times, the Bible says. He'll fall seven times and get back up on his feet again because the Lord is uh, our everlasting strength. In First Chronicles in chapter 16 and verse 28, we read this. Give to the Lord, O kindreds of the peoples, give to the Lord glory and strength. Give to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come before him, O worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Tremble before him, all the earth. The world also is firmly established, it shall not be moved. Verse 31, let the heavens rejoice and let the earth be glad. And let them say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Let the sea roar and all its fullness. Let the field rejoice and all that is in it. Then the trees of the woods shall rejoice before the Lord, for he is coming to judge the earth. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good and his mercy endures forever. Everlasting mercy. His mercy endureth forever. The psalmists repeat that refrain over and over again. He is so merciful, and his mercies endureth forever. Verse 35, and say, save us, O God of our salvation. Gather us together and deliver us from the Gentiles to give thanks to your holy name, to triumph in your praise. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel from everlasting to everlasting. And all the people said, amen. And they praised the Lord. The Lord is our salvation. He is our deliverer. We should give thanks to his holy name. We should triumph uh, in his praise. And we should bless the Lord God of Israel from everlasting to everlasting. In Psalm chapter 100 and verse 5, we read this. Starting in verse 4, enter into his gates with thanksgiving and into his courts with praise. Be thankful to him and bless his name. For the Lord is good and his mercy is everlasting and his truth endures to all generations. You know, this was written probably 3,000 years ago and yet it's still true today. 
We enter his gates with thanksgiving. We enter into his courts with praise. We are to be thankful to him. We are to bless his name. We are his people. Why? Because the Lord is good and because his mercy is everlasting and because his truth endures to all generations. And here we are thousands of years later and we can still say amen to this because this is true today as it was when it was written 3,000 years ago. The Lord is good and his mercy is everlasting. He's our everlasting God. In Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 6, speaking of Jesus, the Messiah who is to come, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. And so he is, Jesus is, our Mighty God, he is our wonderful counselor, and he is our everlasting father. Not that Jesus is the father, it's just that Jesus and the father are exactly alike. They're exactly the same. That's why Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the father, and I and my father are one. And Hebrews tells us that Jesus is a perfect representation of the father. So that if you know Jesus, you know the father. You want to know what God the father is like? Just look at Jesus. Listen to Jesus. Read the book of John and read the sayings of Jesus. And then you will know the heart of God because Jesus is God. He said, I and my Father are one. The wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. And then in Isaiah chapter 60 and verse 19, we read this. The sun shall no longer be your light by day. Nor for brightness shall the moon give light to you, but the Lord will be to you an everlasting light, and your God your glory. And so the Lord is our everlasting light. He is our everlasting strength. We are carried with his everlasting arms that are beneath us. And then we read this beautiful Beautiful uh, scripture in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 28. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The everlasting God. Here, here he is, the everlasting God. His mercies are everlasting. They endure forever. The everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, neither faints nor is weary. There is no searching of his understanding. He gives power to the weak. And to those who have no might, he increases strength. Yea, even though youths shall faint and be weary, and the young men shall utterly fall. But those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not be faint. Beautiful promises of God to his children, you and I. He is our everlasting God, our everlasting strength, our everlasting Savior. Back in Isaiah 26 and verse 5. For he brings down those who dwell on high. The lofty city, he lays it low. He lays it low to the ground. He brings it down to the dust. The foot shall tread it down, the feet of the poor, and the steps of the needy. And so God, because he is God and he will accept no challenge to himself, 
he said, I am the Lord and there is no God besides me. There's no God besides him. All the other gods are false gods. They're uh, the work of man's hands and they cannot save. He is the only God. So he brings down the high ones. Those who are lifted up in pride, he brings them down. Pride comes before a fall and humility comes before honor. And that's always the case. Pride always comes before a fall. And God always resists the proud. So if you want God to resist you, then be a boastful, prideful person. And then God is going to resist you and he's going to bring you down. And he will. I mean, before I was saved, I was a very arrogant person. And the Lord humbled me tremendously. And he continues to, to humble me tremendously so that I realize I'm nothing and I have nothing. And I'm nothing apart from him. And then he could use you when you come to that place. But if you start to begin to think that it's you or you think highly of yourself or you think that God got such a great catch when he found you and he saved you because you're such a a great treasure for God to use, well, look out because um, he will bring you down. He does this because he doesn't want anyone to challenge him. No one can challenge him. And when you're puffed up in pride, it's like opposing God. And so God opposes the proud. He resists the proud, the scriptures say, but he gives his grace to the humble and he will exalt the humble. So if you want to be humbled, uh, you know, then be prideful and he'll humble you. Uh, Or you could choose to humble yourself before God and then he will lift you up. And then you know that it's God that's lifted you up and not yourself trying to promote yourself with your own agenda. He'll bring down those who dwell on high. He will lay it low. He lays it low to the ground. He brings it down to the dust. Verse 7. The way of the just is uprightness. O most upright, you weigh the path of the just. Yes, in the way of your judgments, O Lord, we have waited for you. The desire of our soul is for your name and for the remembrance of you. And again, this was the title of the message. The desire of our, of our soul is for your name and for the remembrance of you. That should be our, our heart's desire, our greatest motivating factor for serving the Lord and telling others about Jesus and living for Jesus is so that we will exalt his name. We have waited for him and we want to exalt his, his name. And we want to be those who... Uh, Remember the Lord and what he's done for our lives. But he says here, the way of the just is uprightness. Almost upright, you weigh the path of the just. God is just and true and his judgments are right. And so there may be injustice in this world. And as we get you know, more and more wicked as a world and more and more wicked as a nation and we continue to put the things of God off and we are no longer a Christian nation and we're no longer a nation that fears God and we have wicked rulers and wicked politicians, corrupt politicians and wicked judges and wicked laws and wicked lawmakers and all the rest, then uh, we are no longer a just people and then the judgment of God will come upon us because we're no longer just and we're no longer bringing justice. God wants uh, justice for his people. He wants justice for the widows and for the orphans. And, and so he says, the way of the just is uprightness uh, and you weigh the path of the just. It should be our desire to live lives that, that are pleasing to the Lord uh, where his justice is reigning uh, over us and we are yielded to him. In Revelation 15, 
and verse 3, we read about the song of Moses that was sung there uh, in heaven during the tribulation period. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are your works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the saints. Who shall not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. For all nations shall come and worship before you. For your judgments have been manifested. And so God, because he is a righteous and holy God, he must judge sin. He must judge wickedness. Otherwise, he's not the God that the Bible describes him as. And we know that he is a just God. And so those in this day are, are singing this beautiful song of Moses uh, and the song of the Lamb in the heavenly scene. And they're declaring that even as God is just destroying the earth and just destroying all the people on the earth who have taken the mark of the beast and are following Satan's man, instead of saying, oh, that's not fair, God, what you're doing to the earth. And that's just mean what you're doing to these people who are worshiping Lucifer and worshiping Satan's man and taking the mark of the beast and following the Antichrist and killing the tribulation saints no they're saying god what you're doing is right what you're doing is just and god is just wrecking planet earth at this time he's already taken his saints home he's taken the church to be with him he's going to preserve a remnant of the jews during that time but the majority of the people that will not serve antichrist are going to die during this time they're going to be beheaded the bible says so again the question is um are, are you wanting to wait until it's going to cost you your head to be a Christian or to follow Jesus Christ, you can do that. You can take your chances and you could, you know, wait until the mark of the beast comes and then think you're going to be strong enough to not take it and then lose your head as a result of it. Or you could turn to Jesus now and surrender your life to him now. Why would you wait? Y'all just wait until the Antichrist comes and then I'll say no to the mark of the beast. Really? You think you're going to have the power to say no to the mark of the beast then, but you're not willing to follow Jesus now? In other words, people say, well, I would die for Jesus. If somebody put a gun to my head and said, deny Christ, or I'll blow your brains out, I would, I would never deny Christ even if I was going to get my brains blown out. But it's like, but you won't live for Jesus. You think you're going to die for Jesus if somebody puts a gun to your head, but you won't live for Jesus now when nobody's forcing you to live for Jesus now. It's, it, it's really, it's, it's delusion. It's delusionous, delusional for us to think uh, that we would do that then if we're not willing to surrender and yield to him now. Just and true are your ways. Your judgments have been manifested or made known to everyone on the earth. And that indeed will be the time that God's judgments will be made known upon the whole earth. I believe that time is coming very, very quickly. In Isaiah chapter 26 in verse 9, he says, With my soul I have desired you in the night. Yes, by my spirit within me I will seek you early. For when your judgments are in the earth, then the inhabitants of the world will learn righteousness. So again, he will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee, we've already read. Now, uh, the writer is saying, Isaiah is saying, with my soul I have desired you in the night. Yes, by my spirit within me I will seek you early. 
and oftentimes that is, that is actually the, the best time to spend time with the Lord is when you can't sleep, as frustrating as it is not to be able to sleep at 2 in the morning or 3 in the morning or 4 in the morning and you know the alarm's going to go off and you've got to get up and go to work or whatever. You know, that is sometimes, I believe sometimes the Lord wakes me up at that time just to hang out with, with him because I'm, I'm not disturbed by anything else at that time. There's nothing else going on. It's completely quiet and I, my mind is not distracted with other things at that time. And if my mind is racing and thinking about other things, then I really need to just focus on the Lord and really just spend time with him in prayer. And this is what Isaiah was saying so beautifully to us. Uh, with my soul, the prophet was saying this, with my soul I have desired you in the night. Yes, uh, by my spirit within me, I will seek you early. And again, uh, that, that, is, that is often one of the most valuable times that we can have an intimate, individual, personal fellowship with the Holy Spirit is when everything else is dark and everybody else is asleep and it's, it's all quiet. He says, for when your judgments are in the earth... Then the inhabitants of the world will learn righteousness. You see, when people get away with wickedness and wicked rulers rule over us and wicked laws are enacted by wicked legislators and wicked lawmakers and they appoint wicked judges to sit on the benches and produce wicked decisions in judgment, which we see happening in California and all over our country and so forth, the people don't really know the holiness of God. They don't know the righteousness of God. But when God pours out his wrath, then they know that there's a righteous God who rules over this earth. And there's a righteous God who's sitting on his throne. And, and so when God pours out his judgments, then the inhabitants of the world will learn righteousness. And sad to say that oftentimes that's what it takes for people to finally get right with God is to have to lose everything or to have their whole world come apart because they've been disobedient to God. They've not been living in a way uh, that they know is pleasing to God. They've been doing the opposite, living in a way that they know is displeasing to God. And then they have to suffer terrible consequences for their actions. But then they learn how, how God is holy and righteous. The inhabitants of the world will learn righteousness when your judgments are in the earth. He says in verse 10, Let grace be shown to the wicked, yet he will not learn righteousness. In the land of uprightness, he will deal unjustly and will not behold the majesty of the Lord. Lord, when your hand is lifted up, they will not see, but they will see and be ashamed for their envy of people, yes, the fire of your enemies shall devour them. So it's the same principle. God is saying here, and, and the prophet is saying, if you show grace to the wicked, then he will not learn righteousness. So it really, the whole judicial system is supposed to reward righteousness and punish evil. And it's been completely reversed in our culture. You know, pornography is legalized. And prayer is made illegal in schools all about the same time. Prayer was made illegal in public schools, and the Bible was made illegal in public schools in the 1960s. And then right after that, uh, they made pornography legal. And now we see what has happened in our schools. We see what's happened to our children. And we see the uh, filth and the perversion of the pornography that's just permeated our society. That's not righteousness. That's wickedness. And yet it's our Supreme Court that has made those decisions. Uh, we have the um, 
the abortion of babies in the womb. So we've legalized the murder of babies. And yet we have criminalized capital punishment. So people who are total horrible serial killers, rapists, murderers, cannibals, people who do horrible things to children, the Bible would say that they are to be put to death, that there is capital punishment, even according to the New Testament, according to the book of Romans chapter 13, uh, that God has established the sword to punish the wicked for the sake of the righteous and for the sake of the innocent. So now we murder babies in the womb. That's okay by our legislators and by our laws and by our judges, our judicial system. You can abort a baby up to nine months, even uh, a baby at nine months that's birthed and is, survives the abortion. Their doctors are still allowed to kill it, and that's not murder. That's not infanticide. That's uh, the mother's right to choose. And yet these wicked, horrible people that are child molesters and child murderers and rapists and serial killers... The law says you can't kill them. No capital punishment. You can't, you can't execute this one who killed 50 people in all these terrible ways. It is an unrighteous, unjust system that we have today. And so we don't see God uh, dealing in judgment against our land yet. But the judgment of God, uh, I believe, is coming. Uh, and we are going to continue to see God remove his hand of protection. It's already happening. Removing his hand of protection from our nation and giving us over to our enemies because you cannot kick God out of your society, throw God out of your government, throw God out of your school system. A lot of churches have thrown God and thrown the gospel out of the churches and expect that righteousness is going to be there. You're not going to get righteousness when you throw the God of righteousness out. You're going to get wickedness and you're going to get unjust people and injustice and wickedness is going to come in because there's there's always a vacuum that will be filled you throw god out and then you're going to get all kinds of false gods that people are going to worship and that's exactly uh, what is happening to america today but there is going to be a time uh, when god is going to deal justly and and with righteousness and uh, he is going to judge this people in verse 12, he says, Lord, you will establish peace for us. Again, going back to the theme of peace. You will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you. Lord, you will establish peace for us, for you have also done all our works in us. So he's establishing peace for us. We have peace with God. We have the peace of God. We have peace from God because we have the Prince of Peace, Jesus Christ, in our lives. And unless you have the Prince of Peace, you're not going to have peace with God. It's pretty simple. And then he says, and you have done all our works in us, that it's God who is working in you. It's God who is working his will through you. It's God who is using you to do good work. So therefore, I can't say there's anything good in me. As Paul the Apostle said, uh, oh, woe is me. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Oh, wretched man that I am. Um, but it's the Lord. Only the Lord is the goodness. There's no good in me. In me that is in my flesh, no good thing dwells. I say along with Paul the Apostle in Romans chapter 7. So if there's any good that comes out of my life, it's not of me. Because I'm a wicked man. I have a wicked heart. I have a wicked body, wicked flesh that is corrupt and sinful to the core. And yet God will use us because he works and he has wrought good works in us. And he does his good works through us. And then it's, it's from him, it's through him, and it's back to him. All glory goes to God. Because I can't take any credit if God uses me uh, and neither can you. But he, he does use us. 
for you have also done all our works in us. Verse 13, O Lord our God, other masters besides you have had dominion over us, but by you only we make mention of your name. And indeed, isn't that true? Would, if we're honest, we would all admit this, that we have had other masters besides God. You know, and whatever you surrender yourself to do or to obey, whatever voice you listen to, uh, that becomes your master. And so other masters have ruled over us, whether it's the world, whether it's the flesh, whether it's our pride, whether it's our desire for money, or whether it's lust, or whether it's greed, or avarice, or whatever it is, our desire for power. These are other masters, other gods that sometimes we worship, and we have worshiped in the past. And so we have to be honest with God. Oh, Lord, our God, other masters besides you have had dominion over us. And remember, uh, Jesus is a good master, and sin is a very harsh master. Satan is a wicked master. And you're going to serve somebody. Somebody's going to be your master. We're all slaves of either righteousness or of wickedness. He says, but by you only we make mention of your name. Verse 14, now he starts to talk about, he's going to uh, come up on, on the resurrection of the dead here. They are dead. They will not live. They are deceased. They will not rise. Therefore, you have punished and destroyed them and made all their memory to perish. Verse 15, you have increased the nation, O Lord. You have increased the nation. You are glorified. You have expanded all the borders of the land. Verse 16, Lord, in trouble they have visited you. They poured out a prayer when your chastening was upon them. And that is so true for us. In trouble, they visited you, and they poured out a prayer when your chastening was upon them. And so it is the blessing of God when he disciplines us. It's the blessing of God when we don't get away with murder and we don't get away with living double lives and, you know, when we're, you know, not living as hypocrites, when God busts us and, and God doesn't allow us to get away with anything. That's a blessing of God because the Lord chastens those whom he loves as a father who chastens his son, the Bible tells us. In trouble they visited you, they poured out a prayer when your chastening was upon them. And so, you know, whatever you're going through tonight, you can always cry out to God, and, and he will always save you. He'll always hear your prayer. And if, if he's chastening you, that means that you're a child of his because he doesn't discipline those who are not his own children. So if you're getting away with murder and you're a total hypocrite and you're a total phony Christian and you have everybody fooled, that's the worst thing that could happen to you because that means that you are really not a child of God. He says in verse 17, as a woman with child is in pain and cries out in her labor pangs, when she draws near the time of her delivery, so we have been in your sight, O Lord. We have been with child. We have been in pain. We have, as it were, brought forth wind. We have not accomplished any deliverance in the earth, nor have the inhabitants of the world fallen. He's saying that the, the children of Israel were struggling. They were suffering. They were like a woman in labor, pains to have a child, and then uh, the baby didn't come. We we gave birth to wind. Uh, in other words, you can't do anything apart from God. We have not accomplished any deliverance in the earth, nor have the inhabitants of the world fallen. However, verse 19, he says, Your dead shall live. Together with my dead body, they shall arise. 
Awake and sing, you who dwell in the dust, for your dew is like the dew of herbs, and the earth shall cast out the dead. So when people say that the resurrection is not an Old Testament doctrine, that the resurrection is only New Testament teaching, that is not correct. The Old Testament does speak about a resurrection, a resurrection from the dead, a physical resurrection. You remember Job said that, uh, in my flesh I know that I shall see God. Job understood there was a resurrection. Uh, Daniel understood that there was a resurrection. In Daniel chapter 12 and verse 2, Daniel said this, Many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And so Daniel knew about the resurrection from the dead. For the righteous and for the wicked. There's going to be a resurrection of the righteous and the wicked. Jesus speaks about this in the book, the Gospel of John. The book of Revelation talks about this in Revelation chapter 20. We know that the resurrection of the church is the rapture of the church. Paul the Apostle talked about this in 1 Corinthians 15 and in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. The resurrection of the dead, the catching up uh, of the saints to meet the Lord in the air. And so this is uh, an Old Testament doctrine. It's not ju just New Testament that the Lord is going to raise the dead. He said, your dead shall live together with my dead body. Some believe that this is a prophecy uh, speaking of Jesus, that Jesus is saying this, uh, together with my dead body they shall arise, speaking of his resurrected body and those who he's going to bring with him. Some believe it's Isaiah who's been shown the resurrection, that he knows that he's going to be part of the resurrection as well. Uh, and some believe that this is uh, prophetically speaking of Jesus saving the souls who were in, in Abraham's bosom. You remember in Luke chapter 16 that Jesus told the parable, a true story. Whenever Jesus told a parable, it was a true story because Jesus cannot lie. Uh, and he told the parable of, about the rich man and Lazarus and how the rich man was a wicked man and he didn't care about the, the poor man who was sick and had, you know, begging for scraps from his table and dogs licking his wounds and all the rest. And uh, the poor man died and, uh, and went to a place of comfort to Abraham's bosom in the heart of the earth. And the rich man also died and went to hell and he was in fire and he was burning. And so there was this uh, double compartment of hell in Hades, in the heart of the earth. The Old Testament word is Sheol, where you had the righteous dead, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Daniel, Joseph, all the Old Testament saints would have been there. Esther and all the rest, all of the Old Testament saints who were believers in God and who were looking forward to the sacrifice of the Messiah by faith, they were there in Abraham's bosom in a place of comfort. You also have another place, another uh, uh, compartment of hell where there is burning and fire and torture where the wicked went. And Jesus went, remember the three days and three nights, that Jesus' body was in the tomb. His soul went down to the lower parts of the earth. Jesus said it's going to be just like it was with Noah, just as uh, Jonah. As Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the whale, so the Son of Man shall three days and three nights be in the heart of the earth. This is the sign that he is who he said he was, the Messiah, that he would be raised after three days and three nights. So Jesus was saying, uh, we read in Acts chapter 2, thou hast not uh, uh, forgotten my soul in hell, but you've raised me up. Peter is talking about that psalm pertaining to Jesus, that Jesus went down to hell. He went down and he preached to the souls that were in hell, according to Peter, and then he set captivity captive. He took all of those 
who were awaiting him, the righteous dead, and he took their souls with him to heaven. And you remember that there was even some people who were bodily resurrected. The book of Matthew records when Jesus was raised from the dead. Many of the Old Testament saints were also raised with him and were appearing to people and talking to people and so forth. And so some believe that this is what this is speaking of, that Jesus is promising that when he uh, is raised, he also is going to bring with him those uh, who were believing in him, the righteous dead from before the time of Christ. And then, of course, when we die, the Bible says we don't go there. The, the, the believers don't go to this place called Abraham's bosom. As a matter of fact, Abraham's bosom is now empty. Jesus set the captives free. He led captivity captive according to Ephesians chapter 4. And, um, and so Paul the Apostle tells us when we die that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And so we go right to be with the Lord when we die. The, there is no separation uh, or conscious separation between the believer, the Christian, and Jesus. When we die, we enter into his presence and our soul is forever with the Lord. We read in verse 20, Come, my people, into your chambers and shut your doors behind you. Hide yourself, as it were, for a little moment until the indignation is past. For behold, the Lord comes out of his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity. The earth will also disclose her blood and will no more cover her slain. So this is a beautiful uh, prophecy. And I, I believe that this is what is being said here. Verse 19 talks about the resurrection of the dead, clearly. Verse 20 talks about a place where God's people, after the resurrection has just happened, are going to be taken, and it's going to be a place of comfort. It's going to be a place of peace. He says, come, my people, enter your chambers. In my Father's house are many mansions, Jesus said in John 14. If it were not so, I would have told you so. I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go, I will come again to receive you unto myself, that where I am there you may be also, and so very possibly this is a prophecy of Jesus talking about the rapture of the church, the resurrection of the dead, that we're going to be taken bodily, physically into our Father's house, the house, the doors are going to be shut behind us. This is in heaven. He's going to hide us for a little while, as it were, for a little moment, until the indignation is passed, and then he's going to pour out his holy wrath upon the Antichrist and upon a Christ-rejecting world. You say, well, that's not fair. Well, then people just need to get saved. Everybody can believe in Jesus. Jesus died for the sins of the whole world. For God so loved the whole world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting. All you have to do is believe on Jesus, and you don't have to worry about being here for the wrath of God being poured out. This is for the enemies of God. His indignation is going to be poured out upon his enemies, not upon his children or his bride. He's going to take us to home, uh, to our home in heaven with him into his father's house. We're going to enter his chambers. He's going to shut the doors behind us and hide us up there, as it were, until his indignation, which is another word for the wrath of God or Jacob's trouble or the time of the great tribulation period, is going to be poured out upon this earth. And he's going to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity, and the earth will disclose her blood and will no more cover her slain. So many beautiful promises here. Isaiah is such a rich book. You know, we're already almost, already after a year in Isaiah, we're almost halfway through the book of Isaiah. Uh, so it's a great book. There's so many prophecies in Isaiah about the future and about 
Jesus and about the kingdom that's coming and about the resurrection of the dead, the rapture of the church and the great tribulation period and God's eternal reign. It's such a joy to be able to study through the word of God with you this evening and on Wednesday nights here at Calvary. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for all of these wonderful, beautiful promises in your word. We thank you, Lord, that you will keep us in perfect peace as we fix our eyes on you and we keep our minds fixed on you, Lord. Help us to be those, Lord, who know your truth, Lord, who surrender to your truth, Lord God, that we would be those who not only learn your word, but we would obey what your word tells us to do, Lord. For, Lord, it's in our best interest to surrender our lives to you. And we know, Lord, we fall miserably short. Thank you for your mercy upon us, Lord, for there's none righteous, no, not one, Lord. We know, Lord, there's none who do good. Lord, we do not stand before you in our own righteousness. We plead the blood of Jesus, and we stand before you robed in the righteousness of your son, Jesus Christ. For you tell us, for God made him who knew no sin, to become sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God through him. 2 Corinthians 5.21 tells us this. And so, Lord, it's not our own righteousness. Our righteousness is as filthy rags, but it's your righteousness, Jesus, that you have robed us in. You have clothed, clothed us in this, Lord. Help us to be those who are not just hearers of your word, but we would be doers of your word as well. For you told your people, Lord, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do the things that I command? And so, Lord, may we be those who are hearers and doers of your word. Help us to take up our cross every day and to deny ourselves and to follow you. Bless your people, Lord. Bless all those watching online. We have people watching from all over the country and even in other countries, Lord, watching these sermons. Thank you so much, Father, for them. And just pray a special blessing for everyone who hears this message. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We all want to thank you for listening. If this message has blessed you, as we all pray that it has, send the link to this podcast to your friends. Working together, we can get Michael's teaching of the whole of God's inerrant word to all those who hunger to hear it. If you would like to see this ministry expand to reach even more of the broken and lost, if you have questions, comments, and prayer requests, Email us at coah podcast at gmail.com. We would be honored to pray for you, as we hope you are praying for us. Good day and God bless from City on a Hill Church, Tehachapi, California.